and thanks for joining us for the first Dairy Dialogue of August. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of DairyReporter.com, the daily dairy news portal for the entire dairy industry from farm to fork, or farm to spoon if it's a yogurt. I promised I'd give you a few of the special August days for your interest and amusement, and so here we go. In the US, it's National Golf Month and National Eye Exam Month. Not sure if those two are connected. On a dairy note, today, August the 2nd, is National Ice Cream Sandwich Day. Hold the mayo. August the 4th is International Forgiveness Day. Personally looking forward to that one. The 10th is Lazy Day which I can't be bothered with, and another one for me is Left-Handers Day on the 13th. National Creamsicle Day is the 14th, and there's even a Bad Poetry Day on the 18th. That's probably enough for this month. It's been a very crazy week here at Dairy Reporter. As I mentioned last week, I headed to Nantwich in Cheshire for the Nantwich Show, and International Cheese and Dairy Awards. The first day is the cheese event, which isn't open to the public, and the second day is open to the public, with all kinds of things to see. There's a kid's fun fair, tractors, cars, fruit and vegetables, cattle, sheep, horses, and all kinds of displays. And of course, it takes a long time to put these events together, and much of it is outside. Signs weren't so good when on the way down some roads were closed due to flooding, and some trains were cancelled too. As I walked towards the show in the distance, I could see some flashing lights, and it turned out to be a tow truck trying to get someone out of thick mud in the entrance to the disabled car park. And of course, at these rural-based events, many of the car parks are fields which turn into mud when it rains. And then you add car tyres to the recipe, and it's not very good. As I left after the cheese event, I joked with a steward that I might see him tomorrow, depending on the weather. It's never cancelled, he said. Would have to be biblical rain for them to close it. Well, at night, more rain came, and whether the Bible was involved or not, the second day of the show was cancelled, for only the third time in the show's 122 years' history. So, I'm sure lots of disappointment there from exhibitors and visitors. On the way home, the almost five-hour train ride, there were more train cancellations due to a landslide on the track between Chester and Crewe, flooding around Manchester and Stockport meant some more delays, and then when I finally arrived back at Glasgow, my connecting train to get me closer to home was cancelled. So never mind five hours, it turned into about ten. I could probably have got to Beijing quicker. Crazy stuff, and of course, this is summer. Heatwave one week, floods the next. Go figure. Better go and find the snow shovel, just in case. And so to the news this week on DairyReporter.com. Not as much big news as last week, but we do have lots of news nonetheless. Grupo Lala in Mexico published its second quarter results. Danone is investing 40 million New Zealand dollars to achieve 100% carbon neutrality of its South Island Nutritia spray drying plant. And Nestle is investing 100 million dollars in its Indonesian plants. The USDA has published new farm aid details. SIG is set to construct a 180 million euro second production plant in China. And Hydrosol has developed some new stabilizing systems. And the sale of Westland to Ely is now a done deal. Also in New Zealand, Sinlay acquired Talbot Forest Cheese. 
and we had our monthly look at the new products in the Dairy Isles for July. And there was more, I just can't remember what it was. Okay, so let's now get on with what we have for you on this week's show. This week we have three interviews. I'm going to leave the Cheese Award interviews until next week when I've recovered from nightmares about floods. So we have the latest brand finance food and drink 2019 report came out recently and we spoke with brand finance senior consultant Parul Soni about it. And we also have a conversation with Gareth McCabe, dairy sector specialist at Christine's Food Hygiene about their new advanced membrane cleaning range. And we chatted with Zelika Carr, CEO of the Ice Cream Alliance, about some changes to their annual event in Yorkshire. And of course, we have our weekly update on the global dairy markets, which may include the weather, from Charlie Highland at INTLFC Stone. So let's get things started. As you may have read in Dairy Reporter, at least I hope you did, Brand Finance has published its 2019 Food and Drink Report, which looks at the top global brands. And this year it found that while Nestle was still number one, Chinese company Ely is catching up. To tell us more about the report and what it found specifically on the dairy industry is Brand Finance Senior Consultant Parul Soni. So um, at Brand Finance, we really do an annual study which covers you know, the most valuable brands across a variety of different sectors and a variety of different countries. And the food and drink report specifically is one that we've been doing for the last five years, since 2015. And um, more recently, in the last three years, since 2017, that's when we've been doing um, our top 10 dairy brands because... Um, you know, within the food and drink report, you see we've seen quite a big rise in the dominance of dairy brands within our top 20 food brands and overall. And I suppose, that is it something now that you've been doing it for several years, it's probably people looking out for it now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we get quite a lot of interest on our reports and we uh, publish press releases around them and it gets picked up quite a lot in the news because it's it's kind of like an annual tracker of how each of the different brands are doing and how they're coping with different uh, changing trends in the industry and, um, you know, other brand-related issues that they might be dealing with. All right. And of course, we're specifically focused on dairy, but there are other aspects to it other than dairy as well. Yes, definitely. So the, the reports that we do range from a variety of different sectors. So there's food and drink, engineering, banking, which is one of our largest reports. And they're uh, across 30 or 40 different countries. So it, it's quite a large study. Yeah, And speaking of it being a large study, how do you collect the data? I mean, it must be something that as soon as you've finished one, you must start on the next one. Yeah, definitely. So the process that we go through for the um, valuations, we normally publish them around February um, each year and throughout the course of the year. So in February, we publish our most 500 most valuable brands in the world. And then over the course of the next few months, we will publish the most valuable brands in uh, specific sectors and specific countries. But all of the analysis for that really gets done in the year before. So you know, the analysts and the team work from around now, really, July, August, up until the end of the year, collating this data. And um, so 
since it's a public study, all of the sources that we use for our evaluations are public as well. So a lot of the financial metrics will come from sources like annual reports, public analyst forecasts, and you know country growth expectations, etc. And then a lot of the brand-related metrics that we use for the construct of our uh, bespoke brand strength index, which is really a measurement of how strong the brand is relative to its peers. We use a lot of brand-related metrics which are also publicly sourced. So for this, we use things like what the social media presence of the brand is, what its web presence is like, what the engagement is, um, how the brand performs in various CSR metrics, things like that. So it's quite a composite evaluation and evaluation that we do across a lot of different uh, stakeholders and a, lot, and, a, and a variety of different metrics. Mm, I would imagine that's probably more challenging for some companies than others. Obviously, you get the really big companies, it's probably quite easy, but for some of them, quite a bit of work, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the focus of our study is really the largest brands in the world, so we don't have that much of an issue um, collating data for them, but, but definitely when you get to some of the smaller companies who, who don't publish their accounts and information in that much granularity, it's it's quite a challenge when you're doing it for thousands of brands. Yeah, I, I can imagine because I know that dairy is a little bit different insofar as in a lot of countries, the biggest brands aren't necessarily the top brands. These aren't massive global brands, but locally they're huge brands. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, it, as with a lot of our tables, the valuations are largely also a function of the size of the company and the size of their revenues, which is why in a lot of our most valuable dairy valuations, you'll see some of the global companies like Danone and Arla up in there, as well as you know some regional companies, like you said, um, you know Italy in China, Amul in India. But normally you see that it's dominated by some of the global players, which have a broader presence. I admit totally to not having read every report other than the dairy ones. So do you see massive variation in, or not very much variation in those rankings on an annual basis in other sectors? I think it depends on how the sector is exposed to um, what the general risks are, what's happening in the industry itself. I think for food and drink and dairy in particular, it's quite an interesting time because there's so much going on around uh, changing consumer trends. You know, there's a, there's a real shift towards more homegrown, organic and healthier alternatives that you're seeing. And especially in, in the snack food industry, you see a shift away from single-use plastic, and that's really affecting some of the bigger companies, like you see Kraft Heinz, Nestle, and Kellogg's, which are really, you know, fa facing the downside of this uh, changing trend. And how would takeovers factor into this? Because obviously we've had recently very obvious one, uh, Vili taking over Westland. So, so a couple of different ways. So firstly, of course, the acquisition would, would help boost expectations of Illy's performance in the future. So I'm not sure if you would have seen in one of our reports, we do um, rank some of the largest dairy brands in terms of brand potential. And Illy ranks most highly on this compared to some of the other players. And this would incorporate some of the expectations around Illy's future acquisition plans, any existing acquisitions that they've um, just completed. So these expectations will feed into forecast performance for Illy. And then, you know, over the next couple of years, we'll see the decision of how Illy wishes to treat the, the brand of Westland, so whether it's going to rebrand it to something that's uh, related to one of Illy's own brands or whether they decide to keep Westland as 
you know a standalone brand in the um, in the New Zealand market, that would really de- decide if if all of the performance and the value that that Westline generates gets combined into Illy's value. You've also in your report, Meng Yu is another big Chinese brand. Have they been sort of growing steadily, or has their growth been based on acquisitions? So I think but for both Illy and Mengnu, a large part of the growth that we're seeing in their valuation is because of the massive increase that is projected for the Chinese market in terms of dairy consumption. So in recent years, there's been more of a trend towards increased dairy consumption because of health reasons. And also, just generally, I think, since the 2008 Chinese milk scandal, there has been a disruption in the trust that the consumer has had in local brands. And that's why most Chinese consumers over the last few years have preferred imported products as opposed to local brands. But I think that's definitely changing as brands like Illy and Mengnu have established themselves as um, as reliable players in the market, competing against some of the bigger players like Danone. And you can see this in terms of... Um, what they're investing in, in terms of their innovation efforts and R&D efforts. They've recently invested a significant amount in an R&D facility in Europe. And that really demonstrates their you know, commitment to developing the brand and you know, continually providing innovative products for their customers. Do you think this trend of Chinese growth is going to continue and, and other um, companies like you mentioned earlier, Amol, do you think that these are the kind of companies that are going to continue to grow? I think I think definitely so. I think definitely for the next half decade, we'll see a rise in the performance of a lot of these Asian brands, which are continuing to see a growth in their domestic markets, but also, you know, through, for example, as we see in Italy, they're continuing to expand their global footprint as well through acquisitions in Thailand, New Zealand, etc. And at the same time, there is, you know, the rise in, in vegetarianism and veganism and the rise of, you know, options for plant-based alternative to dairy products in so, for example, the European markets or the American markets are seeing a decline in some of the Western brands such as Danone and Arla who haven't performed as well in our study this year. You mentioned the dairy alternative space. We've seen companies like Danone approaching it through acquisitions, through Alpro and White Wave. Other companies have taken a similar approach, whereas others have developed their own internal products. How do you see that particular space developing? Uh, I imagine it would be a mix of both, but I think as as the trends have suggested, people tend to be drawn more towards local and homegrown products. So often you'll see a lot of these brands starting up as more local brands, which then get acquired by a lot of these bigger companies who are, you know, whether proactively or reactively trying to recalibrate their portfolios to address the changing consumer demands. Just for example, Danone expects their vegan business to grow by more than 300%. And that's a significant amount. And that is driving a lot of the investment that Danone is putting into their portfolio. Are there any other trends that you see emerging within dairy in the next little while? I think one of the things that really stood out this year is that if if you look at the most valuable dairy brands, as I mentioned, there's a lot of the uh, dominances. It's dominated by some of the bigger international players, but then the other metric that we measure is the strength of the brand, which isn't that sensitive to the size of the brand itself. You see 
brands like Illy and Amul coming up higher than Danone. So really it shows how the preference of the consumer towards more local brands, specifically in the dairy category, comes out quite strongly, where most consumers prefer local products, homegrown, and there's, there's more of a, a national pride element in that as well, where they prefer and feel more strongly towards local brands. Yeah, I think that seems to be extending in every area, doesn't it, that people are looking for for homegrown for health reasons as well as for economic reasons. Exactly, and I, I think that that's absolutely correct that it's it's been seen in several categories, but I think it's, the effect is definitely strongest in in the dairy industry. Next up is Christine's Food Hygiene, which has introduced a new portfolio of cleaning products to tackle cleaning of membranes in the dairy and beverage industries. Working with sister companies within the Belgian headquartered Christine's Group, Christine's Food Hygiene has developed a range of specially blended products that are able to clean plant equipment with minimal use of chlorine. We chatted to Gareth McCabe, who is the dairy sector specialist at Christine's Food Hygiene. I first asked about the origin of the company, as initially in the UK it was known as Clenzan. Clenzan was started in 1989 by um, a previous MD, John Bell. He was based in South Africa, brought his family back to the UK, was in the industry and thought that he could do a better job, looking after customers, better service, etc. So he set up his own business, uh, as I say, in 1989. And the business grew steadily under John big part of our business was dairy business so probably 85 percent of our business was dairy and then about five years ago um, john sold half of the business to christine's because christine's is a family business he knew that they would run the company as an autonomous business within the group uh it wouldn't just shut us down and file us into other factories which is what would have happened if we'd have been sold probably to our competitors it was a good fit for christine's because they were breaking into the, the food hygiene business to expand really they they're predominantly a laundry business and, and have something like a you know 80 percent market share so very difficult for them to grow within that sector so john sold them 50 percent of the business and then a couple of years ago john um, sold his 50 percent share to the to christine's and we became christine's food hygiene it's been very very positive and you said that what what you do is about 85% dairy. What kind of things do you do within dairy? So we do, we, we look after the hygiene of all the dairy manufacturing businesses, the liquid milk manufacturers, cheese, yogurt, butter, all those kinds of things, whey processing. Okay. And, and what kind of products or services do you have for for all of those industries? We have a range of chemicals for the hygiene and dairies, plus obviously expert knowledge from people that worked within the dairy industry, understand cleaning, CIP, the process, so that we're able to offer the service. So, you know, it's not just about the chemistry, it's the, it's the ultimate, it's about the service that we can offer to our customers to improve their cleaning, to improve the efficiency of their the cleaning of the plants, so we can save them costs on chemicals, water, energy, uh, and ultimately look after the quality of their products okay. with them in partnership, really. And, and the new products that you've just come out with, what what are those? We've dealt with various membranes over the years, white water and sort of effluent membranes predominantly. 
over the years, uh, and we we have developed a, a or we had developed a range of chemis- chemicals that were suitable for that. But we found that we were struggling with some of the the, the further process and whey processes and that sort of thing. So we found that uh, our Italian food hygiene business were working quite well within the cheese or the dairy industry with with membrane processes. They work with uh, cotton membranes who are a manufacturer of membranes. Um, so we looked at the chemistry and thought, yeah, that would be a good it would be a good fit to to our range. And what we did was we've actually been running the Memcare range products from Italy. We manufacture in the UK now, but the, the, that formulation that we've been running for about a year in the dairy industry with whey plants, we've been evaluating it across that time. And then we, we've just rebranded all of our products to the Meda Memcare range. But the, obviously this new new chemistry to us was, was about a year, but you know, obviously you want to evaluate something before you shout about it. <laughs> mm. So it's been um, obviously been doing well then. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were lucky enough to get a contract for a, a group who were probably using the primary supplier of um, membrane chemistry in the UK. We've used this this medium care range, and we've had absolutely no issues whatsoever. It's really just about the the chemistry within the the medium care range, you know, the advanced surfactants, uh, and the highly um, sophisticated enzyme systems that we're using. So that's what's better than previous sort of solutions. Yeah. That other, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, as I say, from from our point of view, the the the, um, the, the surfactant system was was much more modern than the, than the one we were using, and, and it's better. Uh, traditionally, the industry has used uh, lipase and protease um, enzymes, either individually or as a as a pair. And our enzymes have uh, got six enzymes in it. So it's uh, it, it it looks at you know sugars and cellulose and complex carbohydrates that kind of thing, as well as protein and and uh, fat. And you said it's been out for a little while. Um, what's the reaction been like to it so far? They're actually saying nothing about it, which is which is great. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, I know that sounds a bit strange, but it's like yeah, they're saying nothing about their membranes at all. So when people say nothing about their membranes everything's working there's no problems and that's you know that's ultimately how we evaluate our, our chemicals no micro issues no membrane life issues no no issues at all with the, with the chemistry in use and people tend not to shout about things but only when they've got a problem <laughs> And now to an expanding event. One of the shows I went to earlier this year, although it seems like forever ago now, was the Ice Cream Expo in Harrogate in Yorkshire. There was snow on the ground on parts of the drive down, but it was certainly one of the more enjoyable events I've been to. Small, yes, but friendly, focused and very useful for those in UK ice cream businesses. However, the Ice Cream Alliance, which runs the event, surveyed its members and the message was clear. Ice cream shops sell more than just ice cream. So we'd like the event to reflect that, please. And so it will. Although the Ice Cream Expo had a great acronym, ICE, ICE, it will no longer because from the February 2020 event, it will be renamed the Ice Cream and Artisan Food Show. And to tell us more about what led up to the change and what we can expect at the show, we spoke with CEO of the Ice Cream Alliance, Zelika Carr. 
Well, it's always good to talk to you, and I assume it's summer, so it must be a very busy time in ice cream and at the Ice Cream Alliance. Yeah, yeah, well, because obviously we're in the midst of a membership renewal, and members renew their membership for the 1st of September. We've um, taken on a lot of technology in the last couple of years. You know, we've got obviously cloud-based, uh, database, and also um, zero. Uh, as an accounting package, we're just trying to get our members to be more interactive. You with me? Because for them, nine to five isn't the best time for them necessarily to contact us. Email has been great, obviously, in, in the last few years, but we're trying to get them to be more, you know, reactive with us to see what's going on. So we can post events. We can they can put their own business card on. They don't even have to worry about contacting us about membership renewal. They can do the automated, you know, renewal now. So we're trying to put a lot of services in place that will assist them because they're busy people who obviously don't have a, never have a lot of time. And people just don't call like they used to, Jim. You with me? People yeah. email us a lot, um, but they don't tend to, to call. Well, the only, the only generation that still calls are the people that still write. You know what I mean? And it's, you know... Uh, people in their sort of 70s so which we still have obviously members who are retired who you know have been with us for decades which is amazing but everybody else as you know with modern technology we just needed to embrace it as well and I suppose the big news is the ice cream expo is expanding well the reason was was we were listening to feedback from our exhibitors and members and visitors you know over the last few years and they just need more than just ice cream. Ice cream will always be at the forefront because that's what we're all about. But as you know, when you go around, there maybe they've got fish and chip restaurants attached to their parlour, maybe they're serving coffee, sandwiches. So they become like small restaurants. So really, especially now with the new parlours opening up, they are classed under the cafe sector. So they just said that they wanted more things that will be of interest to them. So, you know, catering equipment, obviously coffee, confectionery, pastry. So we are very linked with an Italian uh, massive show initially called CJAP, which runs in January. They had 24 halls. We're never going to be that. But what we just decided, we needed to sort of mirror that, but obviously on a much smaller scale. So we uh, surveyed our members just after this, this last expo, and we just said, what do you want? What would you like to see at the show? This is the feedback that we got. 96% uh, of our members wanted to see more artisan food suppliers. 95% of our members want to see more catering supplies and 84% of our members said they were more likely to come to our show if there were those sort of businesses present. Because the one thing about our exhibition is we, out of our nearly 500 members, we'll probably only get, I would say, probably 200 core people that always come. But we needed to try to incentivize them to get there because it is missing out on an opportunity that everything is under one roof. You've been there. We've got seminars going on, demonstrations. We've got new flavors, new packaging that's coming onto the market. So everything that you would want to do to either set up or improve your business machinery and everything else is, up, is at our show. But we just need to get people to say, oh, well, you know, we, we'll just wait for the agent to come and see us at our place. Well, then they're missing out and seeing what else is out there because one good thing about having a trade event is that we're offering a platform to many different machine companies and packaging companies, ingredients companies and flavor houses. And then obviously with the add-on of sort of bakery, chocolate, coffee, as you've seen, it's much more predominant everywhere now. We just felt that our show needed to reflect that. Right. So that's what we're offering. So that's why we are still the ice cream 
element, but we are the Alpha Sam Food Show because the other thing about ice cream, especially how our members make it, is it's, it's always been a very artisan product. So the artisan food industry, which is growing year on year, as you would know, because everybody is looking for that special biscuit to go with their coffee or, you know, maybe a, a fudge or a chocolate. We've witnessed it's a 15% jump in total sales between 2014 and 16 when we looked at the mass. Artisan food is just growing. And you've seen that, haven't you? I'm sure of festivals, street food. Everybody is quite happy to pay a little bit more money for what they perceive as either a unique or a quality product. And you mentioned that people don't necessarily go to shows. I think I've found with, with shows, often a lot of the exhibitors have special deals on when they go to shows. And, and, Correct. And so it, it makes sense for members to take advantage of that because they get better deals. Yeah, exactly. And also, and you've got some sort of comparison as well. You know, when it is under one roof, you've got a comparison. If you have, like I said, you have an agent come to you and he shows you his selection, it is only one selection. There are many different sort of products on the market, similar, but maybe suit your recipe better. And you're only going to know that if you go and taste things. And one thing is that we do have is a lot of opportunity to taste some very good quality products. Mm. And we just felt the artisan food part of it, it just fitted in, like you said, very well with us. Because as, as we produce a handmade product, most of our members do that, you know, in their own parlours. Don't get wrong, some of them do produce supermarkets under unnamed, you know, their name brands and things like that. But the majority of our members are now small to medium businesses who produce a, a fantastic handmade product using traditional methods with high quality ingredients so it just fits in very well into that sector and the other thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people especially to come like to the first day and this year we've got a celebrity chef so we've got Gennaro Concardo so you might have known him from the two greedy Italians or Sassy Kitchen so he's coming to open our show and maybe do a little bit of a demo and maybe do a bit of um, tasting of our ice cream on the national ice cream competition which would be great Earlier, you also mentioned about different options such as snacks and coffee. I think that's really important because if you, as a family, go to an ice cream parlor and they only have five or six options, it might not be to everybody's liking or there may be somebody that's vegan and it doesn't suit them or they may be looking for lactose-free. So I think having that diversification of products is really important. A lot of our members are now manufacturing vegan products and we're even looking at it possibly um, having a free-from class um, introduced into our national ice cream competition. So it could, you know, you could enter a product that's either free from dairy, free, you know, free from sugar. We're even trying to reflect the market. Like you said, it's not just a trend. It seems to be a lifestyle. The venue that you're at, there is potential for expansion there. It's not like you're going to have to yes. find a new venue. No, not at all. That, that was always the great thing, like you said, of this new build. It's, it's massive, massive, the new hall. And obviously the uh, surrounding facilities. And the one thing a lot of people like is still they love coming to Harrogate. It is a great draw for restaurants and bars, hotels and everything. And it's quite affordable. And of course, now with Strong Links out of London, there's a train that goes directly to Harrogate now out of uh, King's Cross. So it makes it much easier, doesn't it, for people to get there. And we are near the airport. So we're near, near Leesbrad, so not that far from Manchester. Or even if you were coming up from East Midlands, it, it wouldn't be too much of a trek. But the other thing that uh, we know and you might have seen is parlours are really growing. And it's about 20% annually at the moment. So it's probably, you know, the UK's fastest growing sector is the ice cream parlour. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and I think the, the other thing that associates with that is that the, the more growth that you get the, and the show develops, I think it attracts more people because as it grows, there's more reason to be there because you're not just going to go around the event in half an hour kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we're trying to do more live demonstrations actually in the hall. But like you said, people like to see activities happening actually in the show. It's, you know, it's a bigger draw. It's a bit more atmosphere. So, yeah, it's great. And we've got a new um, exhibitor this year who's coming over from Romania. So they're the biggest stand that we've had for about 10 years. So a food ingredients company that's gone into the ice cream market. So we're very pleased to have them there. And they've got 108 square meters. So it should look really good, Jim. But like we said, you know, it still is ice cream is the predominant but to be fair to our own um, background we were always from the very start when we started in 1944 we were um, supporters of the ice cream industry and the frozen dessert market and as you know frozen dessert is, is probably more um, vibrant than it's ever been. There's so many aspects to it now anyway it's uh, yeah. the, the, the good old days when I used to go to Burgess's ice cream in Beverly as a kid and you had a choice of ice cream or a 99 and that was your yeah. those were your choices it, it's really yeah. come on in the last 40 years oh my gosh uh, amazingly yeah and and even though obviously the government decided to take away the composition of what actually ice cream could be I think in some ways it's a shame because obviously it made it a standard which obviously we still reflect in our national ice cream competition but at the end of the day I think it also opened up like you said the market for different variations and of course now obviously with people's lifestyle changes um, and diet changes and allergies and everything else that's come on probably in the last 10 years that we're, we're more aware of I think the in industry has really embraced that our members are knowing a lot more about their product than they've ever done before you know they're tracing they're asking the questions where has it come from you know what's ingredients give them a list of you know any uh, um, possible allergens that we need to be telling our members about. So I think we've been very forefront in that sort of achievement in trying to support people who do have either dietary requirements or, or allergens. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTLFC Stone. And this week it's Charlie Highland talking to us. Not quite sure how he manages to keep all of the different issues in track, especially when you consider the weather we've been having in Europe. We have a mini heat wave and then rain, and then we have record-breaking temperatures and then flooding. So let's see what it's all meant to the global dairy markets. Okay, Jim. Uh, so just a quick recap of the markets this week. Um, in, in general, I, I would say reasonably, well, it's quite a continuation of the trends that we've had over the last few weeks. Uh, in, in Europe in particular, uh, butter has continued to look a bit weaker. Um, the quotations dropped again, another uh, 73 euros this week on average. Um, and the market, in, we're hearing reports of very low physical prices trading for some origins. So continuation of the weakness in, in demand uh, has been driving a large part of that. Um, there's been a, the production has been reasonably strong as well from, from, the, from the, the fat side of things. If you look at it overall from milk productions, um, we've almost got all of the uh, data in for, for May in Europe and we are down slightly, uh, down 0.1% in terms of milk collections. But that number is quite misleading because the solids have been quite good. 
and particularly the amount of fat in the milk has been quite strong. So uh, we have actually been producing quite a lot of, uh, of butter uh, as a result and we've probably been producing a little bit, uh, bit too much uh, compared to where the demand picture is. Um, exports are very weak at the early part of the, uh, of the year and they're starting to improve a little bit now on, on, in terms of dairy fats out of Europe, but they're still not strong enough to, uh, to, to really change the direction of this market. And also, again, it, it's leading everyone to believe that the stock numbers are starting to build quite, uh, quite well, a little bit too well, uh, because again, the demand picture is not great. A little bit of a different story on the, on the protein side. So if we look at the skim milk powder side in particular, we still have been producing reasonably good quantities. Um, but the exports have been very good. So overall, global demand has been quite strong, uh, which has been compensating for, for that extra production. Uh, so markets for, for skim have continued to, to firm slightly, so it's, it's continued to be slightly higher this week. Um, just looking at the Chinese import data, which has just been released here this morning, uh, also showing a similar pattern to that. So we're seeing um, the, 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 the main powders such as homo powder and skim milk powder increasing uh, quite considerably versus the same time last year. Um, but if we look across on the on the fat side, we look at butter and AMF again down significantly, down about 28% year on year in terms of imports. So again, we're still seeing the same challenge um, you know, from, from the big importers. The cheese though has been performing a bit better, uh, imports there have been quite strong and, and prices have been reasonably stable in Europe. Okay, thanks a lot, Charlie. We will catch up with you again next week and see what happens to both the weather and the markets. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it. I hope you found it informative and entertaining, or even informative or entertaining. I'll settle for either. On next week's show, I hopefully will have recovered from my trip, and we will bring you some interviews from exhibitors at the International Cheese and Dairy Awards in Nantwich. And there are a couple of other interviews in the pipeline for next week as well. We shall see how it all turns out. And I know there's one story on ice cream I'm going to be able to have some fun with even if you do cringe at my attempts of humour. So until then, have a great week. Hope the weather's good for you and thanks for listening.